I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was 24, Olympic snowboarder, an elite gymnast, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a degree, didn't go to uni. And you just find yourself sitting there going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like, I can't just keep going back into sport and doing a competition here or there until my body just starts breaking down. On this week's episode of So What's Next, we have the lovely summer and winter double threat, Stephanie Madros. Steph was a gymnast turned Olympic snowboarder turned elite gymnast. So Steph began competing in snowboarding in 2011 on the Halfpipe World Cup circuit and went to the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic Games. At the Games, Steph grabbed the last spot in the semifinals and finished 18th overall. Post-sport, Steph is now a yoga instructor as well as featuring on the Australian Ninja Warrior Season 1 as the Munchkin Ninja. So thank you so much, Steph, for joining. Thank you. I'm very happy to be part of it. So we start off with the same question for each guest speaker. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Were you a sporty and active kid? I definitely was a sporty kid. My mum could not keep me still, and it's what started my sporting career. I was trying to teach myself a front flip on my bed at two years of age. And all my mum could think was, this kid's going to kill herself trying to learn how to flip herself upside down. And she enrolled me in gymnastics. And that was the very beginning. She thought that enrolling me in gymnastics would help me not do the crazy things at home, which it actually backfired. And everything that I learned at gymnastics, I just came home and practiced over and over again. So thanks, mum. It started my career and it really was the beginning of achieving my dreams. So what was it about gymnastics that you enjoyed? Was it the flipping? Was there a particular uh, element of the sport? Like were you more inclined to floor or beam or what part of it drew you to the sport? I actually think it was just the pureness of being upside down. I love doing handstands and even to this day as a 29-year-old, I am always doing handstands everywhere on everything and you will always find me upside down in some way shape or form <laughs> i have seen a couple of photos on your instagram of you upside down so what i'll do is at the end with the in the show notes when we release the episode i will put a plug to your instagram so if everyone wants to see you upside down they can see you there awesome. <laughs> um, i've done a few uh, handstands on certain dangerous sculptures and it seems to be a habit of mine but I see something crazy and dangerous. And I'm like, oh, I have to do a handstand on that. And uh, yeah, hopefully, and most of the time it does go to plan. <laughs> <laughs> so what did your training regime and recovery look like both as a, a junior and as a more elite gymnast? Look, when I was younger, my gymnastics career was always planned in with my schooling. So I still lived a normal life. I went to school eight till three and then I came home and then I trained from four till nine. And that was four days a week uh, during the week. So I never trained on Wednesday nights. It was always my family time, which was very important as a young gymnast and as a kid to have that family time and not just be within the sport 
24-7. And then I never used to get to go to any Saturday sport because I would always have to train for five hours on a Saturday morning. And basically that gymnastics centre was my second home. I would go to school, come home, have a snack, go straight to gymnastics training, come home, eat my dinner, go to sleep, do it all over again. And as a little kid, it just becomes your routine. It just becomes the only way of life that you know. And it's only until you get older that you start getting more friends and they start telling you what they did on the weekend and they start living a different side of their life that you're like, oh, I actually spend a lot of time in this gym. Like, is it what I really want? But at the end of the day, when you're an athlete and when you're a dedicated sports person, that is what you want. That's it's everything that you dream of. And you just don't know anything different. How far did you get in gymnastics? So my gymnastics story is actually quite interesting. I followed the levels program, which goes up to level 10. And it's alongside and underneath the Olympic program. So it's the national level system and then it's the elite program. Um, I always wanted to go to the Olympics and growing up in gymnastics, the higher up I moved in the level system, I knew that I was never going to make the Olympics in gymnastics. And it wasn't till I was about maybe 15 or 16 that I really had to start thinking about where and how I wanted to get to the Olympics. And I finished level 10 in gymnastics because both my sporting careers or my whole entire life actually has been about closing off chapters before focusing on the next one. And I finished level 10 and that's when I transferred into snowboarding. And after snowboarding, then I actually came back to gymnastics, which is a huge part of what we will be further talking about. Um, And then when I did go back into gymnastics, that's when I chose to move into elite as a vault specialist. So I do have two different sides of my gymnastics career, I guess, one in the levels program and one in the elite program. That's very cool. So tell me about your transition into snowboarding. What was it? Was it the closest sport you could find to being upside down in a winter sport that could get you to the Olympics or what part of snowboarding uh, drew you to it? So I actually learned how to snowboard on a school trip in U10. All my friends were going. It was called Snow Legends and they were all going to the snow on the weekend to snowboard. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so cool, but I'm not going to be allowed to go because I can't risk hurting myself or breaking an arm or a leg to miss out on gymnastics training. And I was in level nine, I think it was at that stage. So my goal was obviously to make nationals in level 10. And if I went on this snowboard trip and anything got in the way of achieving that level 10 goal, I would have just been devastated. But I had sat my parents down and they allowed me to go to the snow. But originally they actually said that I wasn't allowed to snowboard. They would only let me ski and all my friends were snowboarders and I didn't want to be the only skier on the trip. And I put my foot down, sat them down. I said, look, showed them a video of snowboarding and skiing. I was like, snowboarding is so much safer. My legs are glued together. It'll be fine. Like, let's just please let me go snowboarding, basically begging them. And they did. And as soon as I strapped my foot into that board, I just knew that this was the sport that I just wanted to do every single day. And it wasn't actually until I came home from that trip that I looked up every video on YouTube that I could find and I found Tora Bright and the half pipe 
And all I could see was gymnastics with a snowboard attached to your feet. And that was the moment that I sat my parents down and I just said, look, I know I've only done one weekend, but please have a look at this video. This is exactly how I want to achieve my Olympic dream. I want to go to the Olympics for halfpipe snowboarding. And my parents' first response were, you're crazy. That sport is going to kill you. <laughs> but it just, I fell in love with it immediately and I didn't look back ever since. So what did your training regime and recovery look like as a snowboarder then? How did that evolve over time? With snowboarding, it was, I was actually really lucky and really proud that I had chosen snowboarding. Um, I did get scouted for the aerial skiing team at one of my gymnastics competitions. And my dad had actually just spoken to the guy and he turned around and he was like, oh, Steph only wants to snowboard. And the scout person had turned to him and just said, no, 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 we've chosen Steph for the aerials program. Like she has to ski. And my dad just said, no, she's she only wants to snowboard. That's it. Like I'm not going to force her to put skis on. She loves snowboarding at this stage. And to this day, I am so grateful that I did find snowboarding first before getting scouted for that aerial skiing program because I look back on my career now and everything that I got to achieve early on in my snowboard career, junior world championships, world cups, competing over in so many different countries, there is no way that I would have had that same opportunity and the same experience skiing because you spend so much time uh, jumping off that little ramp into a pond in Australia before you actually get to jump on snow. So snowboarding was so much fun and my training was being able to just go and ride the mountain. So I had 15 years of experience of flipping, air awareness and full inverted ability. I had to go and learn just how to snowboard to then be able to put all those flips onto snow, into the half pipe and not kill myself and land on my head. (laughs) My snowboarding training program, it was It was just about riding. I got to snowboard for six to eight hours a day and it was absolutely amazing. How much time did you spend on the snow each year? Each year we used to, I like to split my years into from November to November. In the early days, I did only a six-week training camp in Colorado. But when I was in full training, I used to move overseas to Vail, Colorado in November, just before Thanksgiving. And we would start training in the half pipe as soon as the copper half pipe was built. And the first event usually was within the first couple of weeks of December. So we never used to have much training for that first event. And it was always the most important one, just how it goes. So I used to live in America from November till April. And I used to come back to Australia for May and it was always a special time because my birthday's in May and it was the one month that I got to spend off snow and just focus on my gym training, my strength and fitness training and a little bit of fitness uh, testing in there as well. And I get to spend some time with my family and just really recuperate and just have some me time, which is very important in an athlete's life. And then June till August. I would move down to Jindabyne in the New South Wales snow resorts and I would ride at Perisher. And then sometimes in August, we would go over to New Zealand and compete in the World Cup 
and New Zealand Winter Games down there. And then September, it was back to Jindabyne to train in Perisher. And then October for two weeks, it was back to spring camp in New Zealand. And then November, there was only about two weeks that I was home again. And then it was right back over to Colorado and repeat the whole thing again. That's a lot of traveling. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's a lot of winter. I think we calculated it and I had 12 or 13 winters in a row. Jeez. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. I say that as a figure skater, but yeah, definitely prefer (laughs) the summers here. If you were to pick anywhere in the world to snowboard, where would you pick? Vail, Colorado, hands down. It's my favourite place in the entire world. Do you get to go back there much now? Um, I haven't been back there since 2016 now. After competing in the 2014 Olympics, I pretty much unofficially retired. The Olympics is still the last snowboard competition that I ever competed in. And I do want to keep it that way because it's such a special memory. Then after I actually finished my yoga teacher training, I booked a trip straight over to America and I spent three weeks in America just snowboarding for fun in 2016. And that was the last time I was there, but I am itching to get back over to Colorado and I'm not sure when that will happen now. I was going to say, I think you might be waiting a little bit longer. Yeah. (laughs) During your time in snowboarding, what did your support team look like around you? My support team was always my family. My parents played a huge part as a gymnast and as a snowboarder, but they used to actually come and spend at least three to four weeks with me at separate times. And they would fly over to Colorado to be with me and just having a family member there in the same country, in the same place, living with you for a small amount of time when you haven't seen them in many, many months. It just, it almost fixes you and just brings home to where you are, home away from home. And I used to always spend my Christmas with my family. So we used to make a little holiday out of it. And if I was living in Colorado, we'd fly to Canada and have a beautiful week or two together. And it really would clear my mind and just take away all the pressure of the training and the competitions to just enjoy that two weeks with family, no training, no competition and just really hit the restart button, which was very important. So my parents played a huge part in being my support system and they were always there for me. Let's jump into your transition out of snowboarding into uh, becoming an elite gymnast. How did your support network change or did it change when you moved from snowboarding into gymnastics? No, it didn't change. Mum and dad were right there with me. They actually laughed at me that I was a retired gymnast of six years and I was putting that sparkly leotard back on. And I guess one of the biggest things was that coming out of the Olympics, as a lot of athletes do, we ask ourselves, awesome, we just achieved the biggest goal that we ever can. Now what? What are we going to do now? And my brain did the only thing that it thought it knew how to do. We're going back to gymnastics. And I'm really happy and grateful that I did go back to gymnastics because I had so much fun. I went back into level 10 and competed again, representing New South Wales at the Australian National Championships. And that's what spiked the thought in me to even better my gymnastics career and to move into elite and try that as a vault specialist. And 
at that stage, no Australian had competed in back-to-back winter, summer or summer, winter Olympics. No one had done it before. And that very small thought, thinking that I could train to get as close as I could to those Olympic qualifying for the gymnastics team, that was another goal on itself. And that's what drew me back to gymnastics. And even though it didn't happen, I still walked away as, as an Olympian and it just really made my gymnastics career whole, bringing the fun back into the sport and choosing to, I guess, upgrade, going from levels into elite. And it was the I, it was almost the final goodbye, reaching elite and just saying goodbye to the sport. Not, not goodbye because I still do handstands and cartwheels and backflips all the time <laughs> now, but saying goodbye to the competitive side of that sport and being really happy with it. And it's really hard for an athlete to look back on their career and be happy with it. So I'm very happy with both my careers. Some of the athletes I've talked to, I've asked them if they achieved everything they wanted to and they're like, no, nope, I don't think I ever have, don't think I ever will. And I I think it's really nice that you have walked away from the sport and you're like, yep, I did the best I could. I put in everything I could into that sport. I think it's really amazing that you you went for those goals and you walked away proud. When you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? Is it is it that or is there a particular point in your career that you were like, yep, this is going in the memory books? There is one moment. I was standing at the top of the half pipe in the semifinals at the Olympic Games and I was always about setting realistic goals. And before the Olympics, I sat down with my coach and set a realistic goal if I did make the team. And that was to hopefully finish in the top 20 and make the semifinals because only three people get a medal, only one person gets that gold medal. And as much as you can wish and dream to be that person standing on the top podium, there's only one. And I knew that my realistic goal was not to be on the podium. And standing at the top of the half pipe in the semifinals, I looked down at the Olympic rings bib on my chest. I could see my family in the crowd. I turned to my coach. My He gave me a high five and told me to have fun. And all I could think in that moment was, I've made it. I'm in the semifinals at the Olympic Games. This is my entire life's dream. The worst that I could do was finish 18th. So I had achieved everything I set set myself to achieve and it was right there in that moment. And there is nothing that was going to take that smile off my face that day and it really is the proudest day of my life. Nothing will ever live up to that. But in saying that nothing will ever live up to that, I'm so proud that it did happen and I did achieve it and there is nothing that I would change along my journey to that moment. I love, I do love that, but we're going to completely flip the question now. What was the most challenging part for you as an athlete? Did you encounter many injuries along the way? As an athlete, I, my first major injury was when I was 12. I broke my back and got a stress fracture in my lower spine. And as a 12 year old, hearing the words broken back, like you freak out, you think your life is over. And thankfully, I learned to live with it. And it did heal after time. I had to spend six months out of the sport, but that little deformity there will always be with me. But one of the biggest injuries that I did have, I had suffered a little bit of a shoulder tear through gymnastics and it was nothing much. And right before I had really started getting serious with snowboarding, I was just riding with my team and I threw a really cool trick off one of the jumps at Perisher. I did a back five off one of the jumps and 
dislocated my shoulder and knocked myself unconscious to the point where I didn't even remember falling on the jump and I had the fishbowl moment. I was asking the same questions over and over again and I hadn't even realised that I had hurt my shoulder at that stage. And when it came time to seeing the doctor, this was four years before the Games, I got told that I needed a full reconstruction of my shoulder. And I had only been snowboarding for two years, so I was only just starting to really get the hang of it and starting to improve on my tricks and then being told you can't snowboard for six months, you aren't allowed to go on your overseas trip to Colorado, you have to do nothing for six months and let this heal. And at that time, at the beginning of my snowboarding career, it felt like it was over and my shot at the Olympics was looking like to be gone. And I was meant to go on that snowboarding trip for training in Colorado that season back in 2010 and we ended up flipping it all around. I went to Canada to watch the Vancouver Olympics in 2010 and I was in the crowd watching Tora Bright win gold in halfpipe with my broken shoulder. I had, I think I was five and a half months healed and my shoulder surgeon wasn't allowing me at that point to leave to let my snowboard leave the ground. He allowed me to go snowboarding, but the deal was that my snowboard didn't leave the ground. And (laughs) anyone knows me, they know that is a very, very hard task because I am always jumping and flipping off any little thing that I can find. But being in the crowd, watching an Australian Tora Bright win gold in the event that I was aspiring to achieve, that is really what set the fire inside me to go home, focus on my rehab, get my shoulder better, and then in four years' time I was going to be right there dropping into my own Olympic halfpipe. So that was one of the biggest injuries. It really was a special moment getting to be at the Olympics four years before and just seeing it and breathing it and living it there as a spectator and as an injured athlete to really focus on making sure I did everything I possibly could to be there in the next Olympics and achieve my dream. As an athlete, how do you define success and has that changed now that you've retired? Well, I guess I defined my success on achieving my goals and my goal being the Olympics, I had achieved the success that I dreamed of. That obviously isn't the same for every athlete, but like I go back to, I was always setting realistic goals and dreams and setting realistic ones that I could achieve and just getting one step closer to the major dream that I had set myself. And that was part of my success, achieving each little small goal one step at a time and not getting too far ahead of myself. And that was the same in gymnastics, not as not that there was much too different with setting my realistic goals in snowboarding as well. Set a small one, achieve that, bring on the next one, achieve that and keep going until you're at your final dream. Has that changed at all now for you? I guess now for the first time in my life, I don't have a dream and I don't have a goal and I'm purely living my life because right up until a couple of years ago when I became a yoga teacher, every year of my life, I had something to achieve. I had something to train for. And now I am absolutely loving living my life, not training for anything and not worrying about am I going to achieve that goal am I going to achieve that next dream what do you think yoga has taught you now about yourself do you think you've learned anything since becoming a yoga instructor in terms of like 
managing stress or maybe just something about yourself that you hadn't learned as an athlete? As an athlete, I never really used the word stress because it just brings on all these extra things that are just different in everyone's mind and within everyone. The biggest thing that yoga has taught me and that I've taken on from learning from yoga is to just accept the moment for what it is and just enjoy it. Were you doing yoga when you were still training or was that something you found after sport? I didn't focus on yoga until after my sporting career, before I turned it into a working career, but I always had an interest in yoga. I was always jumping into yoga classes at the gym and at different studios and wherever I was in the world. I was like, oh, there's a yoga class. I'm going to go do one. And there was just something inside of me that drew me to go to a yoga class. But the moment that I had unofficially retired from both my sports and from being a competitive athlete, I remembered how good yoga used to make me feel and started once again looking up yoga online and realized that I could become a yoga teacher. And I actually used yoga to heal my body a little bit after my elite gymnastics I had quite severe bone bruising in my ankles and that's where it really started and what spiked the urge to become a yoga teacher because I started going to yoga every second day and slowly, very small stages, it started healing my body. And that's when I realized, hang on, I'm getting taught yoga from someone else. Like, this is awesome. I want to become a yoga teacher and I want to change other people's lives as well. And To this day, I'm really thankful to get to call it a career and I absolutely love teaching yoga and my body has never been healthier or stronger or fitter than ever before. Obviously a different fit from my athlete days, but I absolutely love the strength and fitness that I have now all from yoga. I think it complements both of your sports really well. So you've got like the strength and flexibility that comes with gymnastics. Uh, You've got the flow and again, the strength that comes with snowboarding. I think it complements both of your sporting careers really nicely. How did you find the transition out of sport? What was the final moment where you were like, okay, I think my time is up here. It's time to move on to something more exciting and new. Well, I'm very thankful that I did have yoga to transition into Um, there was a time that I felt very lost. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was 24, Olympic snowboarder, an elite gymnast, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a degree, didn't go to uni. And you just find yourself sitting there going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like I can't just keep going back into sport and doing a competition here or there until my body just starts breaking down. And signing up to that yoga teacher training, it really did change my life because it gave me purpose again. It gave me a want to move on from sport, but not not move on to use everything that I had learned, all my achievements, all my experiences, and share that with students and with the next generation as well. But one of the biggest things as well that helped me transition out of sport, I started speaking at primary schools and at high schools and at events. And it was with the help of the Australian Olympic team and with the New South Wales Institute of Sport. I started getting invited to special sporting awards dinners and being a guest speaker at certain different events and getting to share my story 
share my Olympic dream and inspiring the next generation and all the other athletes that were there, that's really what helped me transition out of my sport, sharing my experience and knowing that I was helping another athlete and even just sparking the fire within one of the next generation for them to go and achieve their dreams. That's what really helped me let go of the competitive athlete life. Well, hopefully this podcast helps a little bit in you sharing your story. (laughs) What skills do you think you've learned as an athlete that you still use today? Look, never giving up on anything is always going to be part of me. You don't just try something for one day and then go, oh, I suck at that. That's not for me. I can't do that. Okay, what's next? You got to stick with it. And if there's anything that I learned from being a gymnast, especially, you're not going to get anywhere without being dedicated and determined about something. And that's one of the biggest things that I guess I've taken on with being a yoga teacher and with being an acrobatics teacher. You've got to put the time in and you've got to be dedicated to it. You can't just think, oh yeah, I'm going to do this and then change your mind the next day. Focus on it. Don't give up on it and really, really put the time and effort into it. How valuable do you think it is for athletes to actually have a plan B for when they stop sport? So you mentioned that it was really tough for you to transition out of sport in terms of like not having a degree, not having a job lined up. How valuable do you think it is for athletes? Do you think it's critical or do you think it's something that each athlete has a different story and should have a look a different way, I guess? It is really important that you do have a plan for after sport. But in saying that, no elite athlete, no Olympic athlete wants to even think about life after sport. And that's one of the biggest things that's the hardest thing to get through. You're so focused on that dream and that goal. And as soon as someone even mentions, oh, after your sporting career, after the Olympics, after this, it's almost like a feeling of failure. They're talking about what's next before that thing's even happened. And I did. I chose not to study while training because if I did, and this is just my belief of it and the way that I did my career, if I was studying or doing something other than 100% focused on my training, on my goal, and it didn't happen and I didn't make the Olympics, then I know for sure that I would have blamed that other thing that I was focused on as well. So if I was studying or doing a degree at university as well, whether it be online or physically there for some time of the year and I didn't make the Olympics, I would have blamed that for sure. So every athlete is going to be different, but having some sort of plan B, not plan B, plan next, I guess. Um, Plan A is always make the Olympics, achieve everything you set yourself out to do. Um, Having a plan next, sometimes you just can't help not having that plan because you're so focused on achieving that goal. But Having support systems there to help you through that stage is really important. And I kind of made my own way through it, but that's the reason why I went back to gymnastics because I didn't know what else to do. And going back to gymnastics really did help me through that stage because it wasn't like I just came home from the Olympics and then did nothing. I went straight back into my leotard three weeks later. I was right back into the gym a couple of days after I had arrived back home from the Olympics. So... It really did help me transition through, but there can always be more plans, more help out there for athletes transitioning out of their elite sport. I think you're the first athlete I've spoken to that has left the Olympics and gone back into sport. And I think it's a really cool story. I think it's 
keeping that drive, keeping that momentum, keeping, I guess, your like your sanity as well. You've got that routine. You've got all of those like skills and training and regime and everything that you've got pre-Olympics, transitioning that post-Olympics as well. I can imagine it would be hugely beneficial as an athlete to have that as part of your transition. Yeah. I was also at the peak of my career. I was the fittest and strongest I had ever been. And it made transitioning back into gymnastics so easy. Your brain never forgets your tr- your past training. I had spent six years out of the sport in physical vault bars being floor sport, but my air awareness never disappeared. My strength was definitely better than what it ever was. I was still flexible and all I had to do was just remember how to do the skills and the muscle memory all just came back are there different oh this is probably a dumb question are there different muscle groups that you use more in gymnastics than you do in snowboarding so I'd imagine snowboarding would be very legs based and then gymnastics you've got to have that upper body strength did you feel like you lost it when you moved back into gymnastics was that something you had to recoup not necessarily snowboarding you've got to be really strong through the core as well and all my gym sessions, even today, they're all just core. I absolutely love training core. The only thing was that I had to get used to spending a lot of time on the separate apparatuses again. But my gymnastics training and the gymnastics strength that I needed, I was I already still had from all my gym work for snowboarding. It wasn't only just snowboarding. I was still doing trampoline work. I was still doing all my inverted handstand work at the gym and then with a few yoga classes in there as well. And basically getting that gymnastic strength back, it was just time in the gym, just going in, training, skill after skill after skill. And it came back very quickly, which if it wasn't from being in full Olympic athlete strength, I wouldn't have been able to make that make that transition in such a short time. So speaking of that pure strength, really, tell us about the uh, Australian Ninja Warrior journey. <laughs> so where did that come from? Uh, yeah, how did, how did that even become a thing that you wanted to do? Where did that all stem from? So Ninja Warrior basically came from living in America and watching TV at nighttime and Australia, uh, American Ninja Warrior was on TV. And it looked like an amazing adult playground. It's all it looked like. And I wanted to go in there and try every single obstacle that they had. It looked so much fun. And after coming back from the Olympics and after gymnastics and being a yoga teacher, all of a sudden it just started circling on social media that Australian Ninja Warrior was coming. And that crazy adult obstacle course was coming to Australia. And I only found out with only a couple of weeks left to go in the audition process. And I had put my audition in and within like a couple of hours, I had a phone call and was basically accepted into it. And it was unreal. I competed on season one and season two. And in season one, I was one of only six girls to make the semifinals. And at that time, with the sport being so fresh in Australia, it was incredible. We were against the boys. There was no segregation between girls and boys. There was no easy side or hard side. It was everyone against each other, against this massive course. 
And I beat a lot of the strong macho boys and it was a pretty good feeling. I'm only four foot 11 and I was tiny. I was the munchkin ninja and it was, it was a really fun thing to do. Was there a standout obstacle that you were like, this was built for me? Look, there was a few. In training, I absolutely loved the salmon ladder. I loved hanging onto the bar and just throwing yourself up and up and up onto each next notch. And it's such a fun, rewarding obstacle to train. Um, unfortunately, on Ninja Warrior, I didn't actually get to compete on that obstacle. It wasn't till further in the competition uh, after I had hit the water, unfortunately. But it wasn't until I went down to Melbourne and trained in one of the gyms and I actually made it to the top of their warped wall. And that was just like a high moment. And even though I still didn't get to reach the warped wall in the Australian Ninja Warrior competition on for TV, it's so rewarding and it's so much fun just running towards a straight flat wall right there in front of you. Um, but it actually gave me the opportunity to travel over to Western Australia and travel to Perth and train at the, the Ninja Academy over there. And that was really, really fun. We used to just hang out there for hours and hours and hours having fun. And it wasn't even training because you're all just in this big family. And I loved the Perth community over there. And they all just thrived off everyone just getting better and better on the course. Even though I'm not doing Ninja Warrior anymore, it's still such a fun thing that I got to try. And after seeing it, on the American TVs, I'm so glad that it came to Australia and I got that opportunity to have a go. I had no idea it was in Perth. I'm going to have to go check it out. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the best ninja gyms, so you got to get to it. There we go. You've had it here. <laughs> so there are so many athletes and just people in general that would look up to you, your sporting feats, your television feats, and even as a yoga instructor as well. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? Yes, and it's it all comes back to setting yourself realistic goals. Everyone wants to go to the Olympics. Everyone wants to win a gold medal. Everyone wants to make it to the top of Mount Midoriyama. But if you're not setting a realistic goal to help get you to that major goal that, or major dream, then you're never going to get there. And that was one of the biggest things that helped me with every part of my sporting career. And I'll never change that thought. I think that's a great piece of advice. Thank you. We finish off uh, the podcast with the same question for everyone. What's next? Enjoying life. <laughs> I like that answer. Do you see, how do you progress in a yoga career? Is it like, what does, I, I just don't know what like the yoga journey looks like. Do you think you'll keep going with that or? So I'm enjoying life by teaching yoga and acrobatics at dance schools and I'm spending a lot of time with my three dogs and my boyfriend and and I've actually taken on jet ski racing which is so left field and another crazy sport but it's purely for fun and between yoga acrobatics and jet skiing my life is looking pretty good right now and a 13-week-old puppy. I think that's also <laughs> a good one. <laughs> yes. And my, my miniature huskies. I love my puppies. They're munchkin size, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to finish. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining. I have loved this chat. I think your 
your story and your career of transitioning between summer and winter sports is just incredible. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you very much for having me and for the opportunity to continue to share my story and inspire the next generation. Anytime. I'd, I'd, yeah, we'll get you on again. We can, we can do it again. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode of So What's Next with Steph Madras, you should go and check out Lauren Mitchell's episode. She was also a gymnast. Uh, that was the very first episode I did, but that is also a very cool story. Thank you so much to Steph for joining. I, I loved that chat. I think the story of moving from summer to winter back to summer Olympic sports is just incredible. If you liked the episode, you want to hear more, you want to keep up to date with the latest episodes, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify or Stitcher. You can also find us on Instagram at podcast. So what's next? <laughs>